You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. So this is um, a little bit new to me in the sense that I don't typically speak and give the message in churches. I'm not a pastor. Uh, my background is a, an attorney. And I usually tell people when they ask me to speak, uh, if you want a really good closing argument, I can give you one, but that's probably not a, what a message is. So uh, let me uh, open us with prayer and pray that, you know, one, that God doesn't give you a closing argument this morning, but that he would just share his word uh, through me and that we would uh, learn of his love and grace as we do that. Let us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this uh, morning, this day. I thank you for the gift of fatherhood and all of the fathers that we have here today. And just ask that you would bless them and their families and their children. Lord, I ask that you would be with us um, as we focus on your word here this morning, that you would speak to us and that... Uh, through the words that you have laid on my heart, that we would learn more about who you are and uh, what you are calling us and doing for us in our lives. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. This morning, I wanted to talk to you about the concept of hope. Um, and hope is a, a verse or a word that is referred to over and over in Scripture, actually doing some of my research, uh, I read where hope is mentioned about 155 times and about 141 verses throughout Scripture. So it's something that God is constantly bringing to us and, and speaking to us. But uh, I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about, so what does that mean and what impact does that have on our lives today? And the verse that I would like us to look at, and I'll kind of as our text, is Hebrews 6. And I'm going to read the first 12 uh, verses uh, of this passage. We're not going to talk through all 12, but it kind of puts in context what the writer here is doing is he's talking to the Christians, the Hebrews, and trying to encourage and call them to a place of having a deeper understanding of what hope is and not just having kind of a surface, uh, immature sense. So he, you'll hear him at these initial verses calling to a more uh, or a less elementary understanding. And so let me just read them in context. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptism, the laying on hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom 
it is farmed receives the blessings of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to follow this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. So as you listen to that, I think what the writer in Hebrews is calling us is to really think about what does God call us to do if we hope in God? What does that mean to hope? Recently, um, our family has had a, an opportunity to kind of process through what this hope is. Uh, I mentioned in our sharing a couple weeks ago that we have a son, our middle son. He's uh, in his early 30s. And he recently was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And he went through two really significant surgeries to remove that tumor. Uh, they were successful, uh, but they had some, you know, permanent uh, consequences. But as we went through that experience with him, I've had, we've had the opportunity to have several conversations with, with Philip. And, and as he expressed his leading up to those surgeries, uh, he had a lot of friends come alongside of him and come to him and talk to him and, and give him words of what they believed was encouragement. But he shared with me recently that those words of encouragement really didn't help him, that they weren't the comforting words that he thought that they would be. And the reality that he was uh, coming to was that as he faced these surgeries that weren't certain to be a cure for what he was suffering from. Uh, the doctor said, we think we can get all the tumor. It's important that we do, but we can't be certain that we will. Um, he knew that it was highly risky. You know, uh, something could happen on the operating table that not, may not only end his life, but may substantially change his life. He may come out of it with a, an impairment or disability that was going to be so permanent that life wouldn't look the same again. And as he faced that, he admitted to, to me, he said, you know, I'm just scared. And I, I'm grieving the loss of what I thought I had was a healthy body. And as, you know, we have, we're a congregation of uh, largely young people. There's a few of us older guys. But I, can, I know what it, at, at 30, you don't think about what it's going to be like if I don't have the energy and the strength and the ability to do what I do now. And so he was scared about, of that, and he was grieving that that might be gone. And he's thinking, so what does this have for me? And so enter his friends, and his friends would come alongside, and they were well-intentioned. These were friends who you know, cared for him and, and wanted the best for him, but their words were, oh, it's going to be okay. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. You're going to make it. You're a great guy. You're in great shape. It's all going to be okay. 
And while he heard those words of hope or uh, anticipation that was positive, he said, you know, Dad, that just doesn't help. It doesn't help me to walk in the grief and the mourning that I'm in right now. And he was left feeling pretty much alone and, and isolated from his, from his friends. And it got me to think about the question, so do I bring words of hope to people who are in struggling situations like that? Do I, do I bring a concept of hope that is biblical to them, or do I bring to them something differently? And I realized that what Philip was complaining about or acknowledging, more not complaining, but acknowledging, and that what I tend to do is I give platitudes and cliches. Oh, it's all going to be okay. God loves you. Don't worry about it. It's all going to be okay at the end. And we think that that's enough. That's the hope that we give people. And my conclusion is that I'm not sure I know what hope is. I'm not sure that I fully understand what God calls us to do when we share the hope of God with people. And am I doing something more than giving them cliches? You know, hope is a common term that we use every day. My guess is if you think about it, uh, you use that word in, in sentences over and over again with your children. It actually, Webster defines it in a couple ways. He defines hope as a feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. A statement like, I hope today's sermon won't go too long. You know, that's something that we're hoping for the best. Or it's the grounds or basis for the feeling of hope in a particular situation. There is hope you will get better. It's a common phrase that we use. Or we look for, it means to look forward with desire. I hope we can buy our own home next year. Those are common terms that Webster says is the definition of hope. But do we understand and live that in the world's definition? Or do we live it in God's definition of hope? Because the reality is God defines hope very differently. The hope that Webster is defining, if we think about it, is you know, what can be had or what will happen, or I think it'll be better, I hope it'll be better, are all based on uncertainty. We're not certain that the sermon is going to go the right length. You're not certain, and I don't want to scare you, but I'm not certain either. We're not certain that we're going to be able to actually achieve that hope of owning a home tomorrow or next year or having our family cared for. And so a secular view of hope is based upon uncertainty. But as we're going to talk through today, a biblical view of hope is based upon an expectant confidence or a confidence that it will happen. And so it's a completely different view of hope that comes to us as God defines it than as the world defines it. And I think what's significant about that for us as believers is sometimes we think we're talking about hope that's biblical and what God would teach. And what we're actually doing is just parroting back what our culture has told us about hope. 
I want you to think about that. As you talk to people in your life about hope and situations that they're struggling with, do you really talk and give them hope that's based upon God's understanding of hope? Or is it kind of a, just a mishmash of what your culture has taught you? Um, one of the books that I was reading as I prepared for this is a book by Tim Keller on suffering. It's called Walking with God Through uh, Pain and, and Suffering. And he makes the observation that how we react to and experience suffering says a lot about what our belief and understanding of hope is. He notes that uh, the way our culture responds to unimaginable unimaginable tragedies tells us a lot about what we hope in. For example, if you think about the Newtown school shootings that happened several years ago, a tragedy that is beyond... Uh, comprehension that it could happen. Or even more recently, the killing in Charleston of nine people in a Bible study earlier this week is just unfathomable that that could happen. It's a tragedy that has incredible suffering. But how do we process that kind of understanding of, of suffering? And what Tim Keller notes is that typically our culture does a couple things, and are a number of things as we think about tragedy and things that are, are happening. Oftentimes, our, situ- our situation is that what we really do to try and make sense out of, a, of tragedy is we adopt almost, almost this karma attitude. Well, bad things happen because we've done bad things in the past. Or bad things happen in the world because as a world... We're, we don't treat each other well. It's kind of, we, are, we get our just desserts. It's all that karma approach. Or maybe it's an approach that is more Buddhist-like, that says, well, suffering's all about how I think about it. And if I think about it differently and I, and I just realize that my surroundings are, are materially oriented and I really think correctly, I can kind of elevate myself above the suffering. And what it's really about, how can I elevate myself to a higher level of thinking and therefore I can endure suffering? Does that sound familiar? Things that you've heard or maybe even expressed? Or maybe more importantly... And these are the kind of things that, in my background, I recognize is our response to suffering is one of that's very stoic. It's almost that, you know, we'll get through it. It's a defiance. It's not going to get the best of me. I'm going to fight it. Um, we experience this, and may, some of you may have experienced with patients who are in suffering from a terminal cancer. And the question is, do I do treatment or do I not? And oftentimes they choose this treatment that is more destructive to their quality of life than helpful because they're defiant. They feel a need to fight against it. That's what hope is for them. That's how we respond to, to, to suffering. Or in my background, my family background, when we have t- difficult times, kind of the implied response was this stoic buck up. Yeah, this is hard, but you're a believer. You're a child of God. Just 
hang in there and push through it. It's that stoic, uh, I, I'm of German uh, background of, you know, we can make it, don't talk about it, just live it through. And what it does is it leaves us without ever expressing how we feel or ever being able to walk with anybody. We just push through and, and make it work. And I realize that when we do that, we don't walk alongside anybody because we're just holding it tight and maybe I'm being stoic or I'm in this more karma or Buddhist type view. I don't really identify with the person who's suffering or, and give them hope. And I think that's what Philip was experiencing. You know, people weren't really sitting with him. They weren't able to sit down and grieve with him and listen to him. And so it didn't sound helpful. And it certainly didn't give him any insight of what's going forward. Do we as Christians actually incorporate our culture's view into our own lives but think it's biblical? The reality is that in our Western culture, Our primary goals and what we're taught is it's all about my personal happiness and my personal freedom. And as a result, it all becomes what can be done for me or what can I do to achieve those? And so even my statements of hope become statements that are focused on what can happen or what can we change? Tim... Tim Keller notes that oftentimes in these terrible tragedies, the first place we go is, how do we change this? And instead of looking about where is God in this, we immediately think, what can God do or should do? It's usually, what should God do to change the situation? To make people from having such anger and resentment and bitterness that they would kill innocent people. Or what can we do to change our society? And so we become consumed with initiatives and actions and things to change laws. And, and while none of that is bad, and I think we have a stewardship responsibility to think about that and do that, if our response to suffering, our expression of hope, is all based upon what we can do, it's pretty limiting. Because I can't ever do enough. I can't control the next person who has an idea that is so incredibly foreign that he would take somebody's life. I don't have that ability. And so it becomes a hope that is almost hopeless. Our definition of hope can be limiting. It actually limits how much we're willing to lean in and work with people, and do the difficult things. We saw that with Philip. I see that in my work all the time. I do a lot of conflict resolution work, and I work with people and families who are in incredible struggling relational dysfunction and problems. And the question is, will they actually lean into their relational issue and talk about it and discover why they have broken relationships and what God has to say about that. And typically, most people say, well, I just don't hope, I have no hope that the other person will actually engage or make the right choices. And so it limits their willingness. I recently worked with 
uh, had two gentlemen come in. They were in their 60s, and they, they sat down with me, and they were uh, wanting to know if I could help them work out a conflict that had been in place probably for 40 years with their sister, who was also in her late 60s. And it was a relationship that they knew wasn't healthy, and it had been uh, terribly damaging throughout their lives. But now mom has just died, and she has an estate, and they need to resolve that estate, and all these issues are flushing to the top. And these two brothers are saying, what can you do to help us get through this? And what they were really asking is, will you come in and tell us who's right and who's wrong and tell, the, tell people to do something differently? And I was suggesting, no, that's not the approach. Are you willing to lean in to a process that helps you talk with this other person, your sister, and actually explore why you have such broken relationships? to explore what you've done to destroy that relationship, what she's done, and how God can heal that. You know what their response was? While the desire was there, their comment was, we have no hope our sister will ever change. We have no hope that she'll ever see it differently. So no, we don't want to go into that process. So our definition of hope limits our ability to minister to each other. It limits our ability to share God's love with each other. And so I think it's important that we be able to understand a biblical definition of hope so that when people come alongside us, we know how and, and what to do, how we can make a difference. I mentioned a moment ago that a more secular view, our regular definition of hope is based in uncertainty. The reality is that a biblical hope is based in certainty, in the confident expectation. And the reason is, is that a biblical view of hope is a hope in God, not in a hope of what he can do or we can do to overcome or deal with the situation we're in. If you look again at uh, Hebrews 6, 10 through 12, these are the key verses that I think uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is defining what this biblical hope is. And he says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for, shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. Think about those words. The full assurance of hope. It's not a, well, maybe it'll happen. He's saying when God gives hope, there's full assurance that it will happen. And why is that? He says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The assurance of hope is based upon the promises of God. That's why they're certain. That's why it makes a difference to live in hope in God versus hope in what God will do or 
have us do. The other verse that um, I think stays this, states this really simply is Psalms 42. If I can find it probably quicker to just read it here. It says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I will again praise him my salvation. Now, this is a psalm that we see over and over again. The psalmist is always crying out. He's in a bad place. Uh, he's feeling distraught. He doesn't know what to do, and he's crying out to God, Help me. Why am I here? Oftentimes, just, you know, mourning. And he comes back, and he realizes that it causes his heart to be downcast. He's despondent. He's despairing. And then he says, Hope in God. That's the answer. Hope in God. John Piper, in one of his sermons on the concept of hope, says, if there's one sermon that you need to remember and preach to yourself over and over again, it's the sermon of just three words. Hope in God. Remind yourself that your hope is in God, not what he does. And to preach that, to yourself. Be careful not to just listen to yourself, but actually talk to yourself and remind you of what Scripture says. So why is that, that if we hope in God, it makes a difference? Well, I think it makes a difference if we actually consider who God is. Because if we're going to hope in God, we need to know who He is. And is there something about God that gives us that certainty of hope that things will work out according to his plan and so I want to just go over a couple points that as I thought about this about who God is jumped out at me that assure me that my hope in God is something that is certain that gets me through suffering allows me to experience suffering first of all we know that God is for us a verse that speaks to me as 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, and he says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We don't need to second guess whether God loves us and desires our salvation and redemption. That is absolutely what he wants. He is for us and every single person person that he has created. That's who he is. He's a loving God that is for us. But he's not just for us. He's a God that desires to be in relationship with us. You know, it's one thing to tell your kids, I really wish you the best, and I hope that you get a good education, and, you know, I'm, I'm, encur I'm encouraging you. But my guess is most of you fathers, when you talk to your kids, they would say, I don't just want to know that you want me to have good things. I want you to be in relationship with me. I want to know that you love me and that you care about me and that you know me. And that takes relationship. Because that's who God is. He's a God of relationship. In Romans 5, 8 to 10, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are now we have now received reconciliation. So when God sent Christ to die for us, his purpose was not just to give us salvation, but it was to restore us to a relationship that he had created with Adam and Eve before the fall. He had a perfect relationship with Adam and Eve. They were in the garden. They had work to do. They had communion with God. They oversaw his creation. And it was a day-to-day, moment-by-moment relationship with God. That's who he is. And God wants that relationship so much that even when we don't realize we've broken it, or we don't even realize that it's important, he sends his son to die for us while we are still even pushing against the desire to be in relationship. It's that important to him. And God does it not by just announcing it, but he does it by sacrificing for us to allow us to be in in relationship. He does it for us at a huge cost to himself. Now, this is a concept, for me at least, I, I have no idea of how to explain. Because if I were God... And, and the people I created had rejected me. I can't imagine saying, I created things perfect, you rejected, and now I'm going to make it perfect again at my expense, not yours. Makes no sense to the human mind, at least not mine. But that's what God does. God says, in order for us to be back in relationship, someone needs to pay this debt, and I will pay it. And he does pay it at, at a significant cost, at the cost of Christ on the, on the cross. So God sacrifices himself for us, for our good. That's who God is. God is full of grace, giving without our merit or deserving it. He doesn't ask me to do the things that are right. He doesn't ask me to say the right things. I don't have to do anything for him to die for me. He just does it because I'm his, his child. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that you may boast. A complete gift. That's who God is. And we know that God is compassionate, merciful, and just. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. I I love these verses because these are verses where God describes himself. It's him speaking, and he says, here's who I am. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So he's a God who's just. He doesn't just overlook the wrongs that happen in our, in our life or in our world. He doesn't just say, well, they're really not that important. He's a just God. And he declares that justice requires payment. But he's compassionate and he's merciful. So merciful and compassionate that he pays that debt. That's the God of hope that we trust in. And finally, the God of hope, the God we hope in, is a God who prepares and provides for us a life with him in the future without pain or sorrow or tears. Think about that. He doesn't just come alongside in this world and say, I'm going to walk with you through all your griefs. He says, I'm going to prepare something in the future for you where you will actually be with me. That's what the book of Revelations through the Apostle John tells us over and over again. And it's in one of the final chapters, Revelations 21, 1 through 4, uh, John is telling us and giving the believers who are hearing his word at the time a description of this future life that God is providing for them. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned by her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I think what's significant about those words is John is talking to a group of people who are dying and being persecuted every day. These were the Christians in the Roman world who were the very focus of persecution that led to their death, often terrible death. And yet, to give them hope, to help them work through that terrible uh, suffering and situation, he paints a picture of what God's preparing for them in the future. That tells me it's important for us as Christians to understand and know that God loves us enough that he's preparing something else for us. And to believe that and have the assurance that that's what's going to happen. Because that gives us the ability to know who God is, the God that we hope in. So that's the God who fashions hope for us. A God who loves us, wants to be in relationship, dies for us, sacrifices for us. That's who God is. Does that make a difference in how you share hope with other people? Does that make a difference that when someone in your life comes along and is in terrible suffering or anxiety and wants to just mourn and cry with you? Does it make a difference how you share hope with them? 
I hope it does, and I'd like to think about some of the things that I think a hope in God rather than a hope in what he can do for us allows us to do when people come alongside and look for us, ask us to, to minister them in times of despair. First, we should be a hopeful people. We should be known as people who are joyous and loving and see God's love around us. Philippians 4, 4 through 6 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Yet let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. I know in my life, sometimes I've had people come who are really in despair, you know, like my son, and I simply make this statement. Oh, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And they look at me and they go, I can't rejoice. I don't know what's going to happen after this surgery. I don't know if I'm going to wake up. I don't think this verse is telling us to simply tell that person rejoice. But what this verse is telling us is that we as believers know that we can rejoice so we can confidently sit with them and hear their struggles and hear their pain without despairing ourselves and just share it with them, just walk it with them so that we can be ready to give a reason for our hope in all situations. Again, in Colossians 4, 6 Apostle Paul tells us, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I believe that when people come to us in suffering and we are able to sit in the hope of God with them and mourn with them and grieve with them, it gives us an opportunity to be ready to explain why we have hope when they ask for that. It doesn't give us the license to just run over their mourning and their grief and say, that isn't, you know, quit, quit feeling sorry for yourself, Philip. Just trust in God. That doesn't help him. But as I confidently sit with him, and I don't become overwhelmed by his own fear, but I'm able to acknowledge his and share with him and... and talk about it through him, if he gives me the opportunity, and most people will at some point, to say, why is this not shaking you? Why are you not so despairing and yet so so willing to sit with me? I now have the opportunity to say, because here's the God that I hope in. And explain, here's the God that I know. We should be people who do not give up but persevere. People who don't say, oh, this is too much, I'm quitting. But that we continue to press on because we know we have a God who always pressed on for us. In Romans 5, 4, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So a hope in God allows us to persevere in a healthy way, in a way that just doesn't say, buck up, don't talk about it, but in a way that says, I can talk with you when you're hurting, I can sit with you when you're grieving, and not give up. And I'll sit with you until you've completely processed what you need to process, without going into despair or giving up. It allows us to grieve and mourn with those who grieve and mourn, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And finally, hoping God should call us to be a people who trust God, even when we don't know the answer or we don't understand what he's doing. How many times has that happened in your life? It makes no sense what you're going through. But yet, we're called to hope in God because he's the author of everything. It makes no sense to me why a 30-year-old person should have to suffer what my son suffered. Even more importantly, it makes no sense to me why nine people would be shot because they invited a man into their Bible study. It makes no sense to me that someone would have such racial hatred towards someone else that they would think that that's an acceptable response. I don't understand it. I I can't understand it. But I know that God's still in this. And because God is a God of grace and a God of love, he can walk us through those terrible sufferings. One of the statements I've read, I think, I'm not sure who it came from, but it says, if God is small enough to be understood, he is not big enough to be worshipped. If God is small enough to be understood, he's not big enough to be worshipped. So when things happen in your life that you don't understand, if that causes you to say, I can't believe in this God, I should be able to understand what he has in mind and why he's doing that, I think we're asking for something beyond what we need to ask. We don't need to understand God. We need to worship him and trust him and love him. So as you leave today, my prayer and hope for you is that you would think about how you share hope with those around you. Do you share hope in God more than just hope about what God may do for you or you can do for others? I was listening to some of the comments this, uh, at the end of the week about the families at Charleston who reacted to the killer. And that hearing them actually announce who God is to that person and to tell them that God loves them and desires to save him and that they forgive that person just as God forgives them. Those are words and statements by believers who hope in God. I don't believe 
someone with that level of hurt and loss can possibly extend that kind of forgiveness if they don't know who God is and are able to work and, and go forward in the confidence of who God is. And that's my prayer for us, that as we face suffering, as we face opportunities to walk with people through suffering, that we would do so in our hope in God because of who he is, that we would live it, we would remind each other and ourselves of that hope, and that we would actually make a difference that goes beyond platitudes and cliches, but tells people who God is in their life. Let me close this with prayer. Heavenly Father, those are, uh, your word is always convicting and yet encouraging. And Lord, as we seek to be people who are bold and able to share hope in you, we know that we can't do it on our own. We know that that seems bigger than we are. But we know that even that you have promised to do, that you have prepared works for us and that you are faithful and that you will do it. So Lord, I pray that you will take these words from your, from your scripture and that you will plant them in our hearts and you will remind us that we may be people of hope to those around us, sharing who you are and helping people to see who you are. Thank you, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.